You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, Episode 6, for December 2nd, 2007. Warning. Today's story contains sexual situations, explicit language, violence, and disturbing imagery. It's not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome to another episode of the Metamore City Podcast. I am your host, Chris Lester, the creator and founder of Metamore City. It's mid-October as I'm recording this, and I am really excited to see how the audience for Metamore City is continuing to grow. Thanks to everyone who's been helping to get the word out. Now remember, this podcast is licensed under Creative Commons, so you can make copies of it and give them to your friends. If you know anyone who likes science fiction and fantasy and maybe is looking for something a little different, be sure to pass it on. Now before we get started with today's story, I have a question for you guys. What do you want me to call you? Philippa Ballantyne pointed this out on the blog after episode two. You know, Scott Sigler has his junkies, J.C. Hutchins has his clone army, T. Morris has his snitches, and Mer Lafferty has her bitches. So what are we going to call fans of Metamore City? One idea that occurs to me is street rats, after the tough, adaptable folks who live at the lowest level of Metamore City. I wanted to throw this out to you listeners, though, and see what you think. If you like being called Street Rats, or if you have something else in mind, send me a message and let me know. That email is feedback at metamorecity.com, or you can call the voicemail line at 206-350-7333. Let me know what you think. Today I'm proud to present part one of another two-part story. This one's called Troubled Minds. Here you'll see a very different group of street dwellers from the ones that we met in last week's story. And the problems they're dealing with, well, let's just say that they make Will and Callie's troubles look easy. This story features the vocal talents of Brian Watson, Heather Nowak, and Paulette Vallad, three friends of mine who live here in Metro Detroit. It also stars Cunning Minx of the Polyamory Weekly podcast, and it features a cameo appearance by the grand dame of podcasting herself, the one and only Mer Lafferty. I'll warn you guys at the outset, though, this story is pretty dark. If you didn't listen to the content advisory at the beginning, now's your chance to back out. You're still here? All right, then. Grab your crucifix and say three Our Fathers. It's time to hit the street. Troubled Minds by Chris Lester September 3rd, 1999 Christos Reckoning Abby Preston pulled her duffel bag out of the back of the taxi and let it fall to the ground with a soft whump. She looked up at the building in front of her and suppressed a shiver that had little to do with the cool evening air. It was a towering edifice in high Gothic style, all pointed arches, circular windows, and dark, polished granite. Stone gargoyles sat perched over the doorway, glaring balefully down at any supplicants who dared ascend the steps to the front entrance. A wrought iron fence enclosed a small yard, a rare thing on the street here in Metamore City, but then everything about the building defied convention. Though it sat in the shadow of skyscrapers hundreds of meters high, the ancient structure remained defiantly proud, standing out among the warehouses and factories of the street like a cold, hard gemstone amid a pile of scattered refuse and rusty, discarded tools. It was a building designed to provoke awe, and, Abby thought, fear. "'Yo, lady!' the cabbie called out the window. "'The meter's still running, babe.' "'Oh, sorry,' Abby said, giving him a brief smile she didn't feel. She glanced at the meter fished out two twenty-mark bills from her pocket, and passed them through the window. Thank you again. No problem, the man said, giving her a casual salute with the tips of his first two fingers. 
You have yourself a good day, miss. He leaned forward and looked up dubiously at the building outside. And watch your back, eh? Thank you. I will. The taxi skimmer flew off, headed for the nearest available lift back to the upper levels of the city. Abby shouldered her duffel and headed into the fenced yard and up the steps, trying to ignore the gaze of the stone figures overhead. As she stepped into the archway before the front doors, she felt a sudden shift of perspective. Darkness, cold and heavy, thick like smoke, sharp white teeth hanging overhead and jutting from below, like walking into a predator's throat. And then her hand was on the door handle. She stopped and closed her eyes, willing her racing heart to calm itself, shuddering at the chill that seemed to go all the way to her bones. She brushed a lock of gold and brown streaked hair out of her face, wiping away the cold sweat that had suddenly broken out on her forehead. Steady, Abby, she told herself. You can do this. You have to. Taking one more deep breath, she opened the door and stepped inside. Miss Preston? Abby looked up as a short, gray-haired woman, perhaps in her late fifties, approached her from a narrow side corridor. She was dressed in severe, traditional garments of black and white, with the emblem of the yew tree prominently embroidered on the front of her outer robe. She gave Abby a brief smile, very prim and reserved. She looked up and down at Abby as she approached, sizing her up with keen blue eyes. Abby sensed genuine compassion there, but it was partially veiled behind a sharp analytical mind and an air of professional detachment. Abby felt vaguely uncomfortable, as if parts of her were being sorted and filed away for future reference. She managed to smile anyway. Yes, she said, bowing to the older woman. Please call me Abby. You must be Mother Annabelle. That's right, she replied, bowing briefly in return. You may call me Mother Anna if you wish. Welcome to St. Teresa's School and Halfway House. Why don't I show you where you can set down that bag of yours, and I'll give you the tour. That sounds good. Thank you. They stepped out of the lobby and into a high, soaring cathedral, the sort of place that people just didn't build anymore. Abby felt small and insignificant as they walked down the center aisle, headed for the doors at the back of the hall. Impressive, isn't it? Mother Anna said, her voice full of pride. St. Teresa's used to be the central chapel of the diocese, you know, built over 700 years ago, after the citadel was formed and Metamore City expanded into the surrounding valley. She waved a hand in mild irritation. Of course, after all those skyways went up and people forgot how to live with their feet on the ground, the bishop ordered a new cathedral to be built higher up. But I like to think we found our mission down here helping poor young girls like yourself find their way again. They passed out of the cathedral and into a long, narrow corridor, dimly lit by chandeliers and decorated in rich, warm reds and darker earth tones. Mirrors lined the walls, interspersed with yew tree crucifixes and icons of the saints, giving the impression of that the passage was wider than it actually was. The doors along the corridor were a dark, heavy wood, with cast-iron handles. To Abbey... It felt like stepping centuries back into the past. She caught her own reflection in a mirror as they walked past. She was rather plain-looking, with dark brown eyes, a heart-shaped face, and slightly pudgy cheeks that made her look substantially younger than her nineteen years. She was of average height, about 167 centimeters, and while she wasn't technically overweight, she was not what most men would call slender either. Her stomach still stuck out a little where it had once been distended, an inevitable consequence of... On her knees, clutching her swollen belly, warm, sticky wetness seeping out around her hands and dribbling down her back, five neat little holes inside her, long, slender fingers like knives dripping blood. She stumbled, putting one hand to the wall and the other to the pale white scars across her belly. Mother Anna had stopped and was looking back at her, frowning. Abby, dear, are you all right? Abby reached under the hem of her shirt and ran her fingers along the scars. Three scars. Not five. Three scars. That's not how it happened. She whispered, leaning heavily on the wall for support. 
Three times. Three times. Not five. She shook her head, and the motion felt almost meaningless against the violent trembling that ran through her whole body. Not five. Knife. Not fingers. In, but not through. Not real. Not real. Mother Anna reached for her hand. Abby, honey, what's... Don't touch me! Abby shouted, backing away and holding her hands up. You. You don't want to touch me. Not now. She shook her head again. Not now. Not safe. She closed her eyes, took a deep breath, let it out, took another. Not safe. She whispered. There was a pause. All... all right. Mother Anna said at last. You must be very tired, dear. Why don't you come with me? We'll take your bag up to your room and then we can get something to drink. A glass of water, maybe? Some hot tea? Is that all right? Abby took a few more deep, heavy breaths, then nodded. All right. All right. Mother Anna turned and led the way down the corridor. They turned right at an intersection, then went up a set of stairs to the second floor. It was a stark contrast to the first floor. Everything here was cool and clean, pale yellow walls and floors of linoleum, and short institutional carpets in an unremarkable shade of brown. The windows let in what little light managed to filter down to the street through the skyways above, but the only view to be seen was the fenced-in yard below and the smooth, pale gray edifice of the super skyscraper next door. Evidently, they were now somewhere on the south side of the school complex, which had been to Abby's right when she faced the entrance. There was a little sitting room here with some couches, chairs, and coffee tables, and another yew-tree crucifix on the wall. Abby was pretty sure there had been at least one inside at all times since she entered the building. There was a small TV with a vid-disc player in one corner of the room, and at the moment two girls were sitting and watching cartoons. One of them was on the floor with her legs crossed, only a meter or so from the screen. The other was on one of the couches, her obviously pregnant body bolstered on all sides by throw pillows. Neither one of them could have been older than fifteen. Abby looked away, not wanting to risk eye contact right now. She was just getting calmed down. No need to do anything that might set it off again. To either side of the sitting room was a long hallway lined with numbered doors, spaced at regular intervals. Unlike the doors downstairs, these were no more than fifty years old, made of steel with small inset windows and fully modern locks. Each door had a low, hinged flap on the bottom, tall enough for a tray with a few dishes on top. Mother Anna must have noticed Abby looking at the doors. Meals are normally taken together in the cafeteria, she said, as they continued walking down the right branch of the hallway. Breakfast is from 7 to 8.30, lunch from 11.30 to 1, and supper from 5 to 6.30. You have kitchen duty once a week on a regular rotation. If you miss a meal, you're out of luck until the next one. Services are held in the chapel at 6.30 in the morning and 4 in the afternoon, and attendance is mandatory. Classes are held from 8.30 to 11.30 and 1 to 4, Monday through Friday. Saturday is reserved for chores in and around the building, and Sunday is our day of rest. You have free time every day from 6.30 until 8.30, unless additional chores are required of you. Lights out at 9 o'clock. Okay, Abby said, nodding. So why are there flaps on the doors? Some of our girls have special needs, Mother Anna said evenly. Sometimes that means they're unable to eat with the other students. Because they're dangerous? Abby asked. There are any number of reasons, Anna said, keeping her eyes fixed straight ahead. Every girl is different. It's best that you not read anything into it. Abby just nodded and kept walking. A moment later, they came to a stop at door number 267. A small metal frame next to the door held a white card with four lines on it. One of the lines read, Hartman, Jenna, in neatly written black letters. The other lines were blank. Mother Anna glanced inside, then knocked twice and opened the door. Inside were two sets of bunk beds, one against each wall, each with a footlocker at the end near the door. At the far end of the room was a single window and a nightstand that was shared by both sets of beds. Another of the ubiquitous crucifixes was mounted on the left wall, and a canticle sat on the nightstand next to a few notepads and pens. On the top bunk, on the right side, a girl a couple of years younger than Abby lay on her stomach, 
propped up on her elbows and reading a book. Her feet swung back and forth, knees flexing and extending with the restless energy of youth, as her long, pointed tail drew lazy circles in the air. Her skin was a deep tan, with a vaguely ruddy cast that Abby had rarely seen. Her hair was straight, thick, and black, and cut off just above her shoulders. Abby could see long, pointed ears poking out through her hair, and a pair of short, stubby horns protruding from just above her forehead. The girl looked over to the door, her exotic yellow eyes lighting up as they fell on Abby. She grinned. Heya, she said. Abby smiled uncomfortably, not quite looking the other girl in the eyes. Hi. Jenna, this is Abby, Mother Anna said. She's going to be your roommate for the next week, while she decides whether she wants to join us for a more extended duration. I trust that I can count on you to help her get settled in. Sure thing, Mother, Jenna said, hopping down to the floor with remarkable agility. Here, let me get that bag for you. Abby took the duffel off her shoulder and passed it to Jenna, who stepped over to the bunk beds opposite her own. You like top or bottom? she asked. Top gets a locker, bottom gets a space under the bed. Bottom, please, Abby said. That's good, Jenna said. Because I love being on top. She winked, then set the duffel on the lower bunk. Anything special you want me to show her, Mother? she asked. If the older woman noticed the subtext, she made no sign of it. Not right now, dear. We're going to leave Abby's things here for a while now while I show her around. I'll be sure to have her back before lights out so you two can have a chance to get to know each other a little bit. Jenna's eyes swung down the length of Abby's body and back up again, a similar action to what Mother Anna had done upon first meeting her, but with entirely different undertones. <laughs> I can't wait, she said, winking again. Abby turned and walked out the door, followed closely by Mother Anna. She seems... friendly, Abby said. Jenna is one of our long-term residents here at the school, Anna said, her voice warm with approval. She's so helpful, doing more than her share of chores, showing the new girls around, always making new friends. Abby didn't doubt that for a minute. Why is she here? Her mother died when she was three, and her father wasn't fit to raise a child, Anna said. We took her in and raised her here. It's hard to find good homes that would be tolerant of Jenna's mixed ancestry. In another year, she'll be old enough to leave if she likes but I'm hoping she'll stay on and help part-time while she goes to university. Living here would certainly be more spiritually healthy for her than being in some godless dormitory. Abby resisted the urge to roll her eyes. Makes sense, she said instead. But if she loves people so much, why doesn't she have any roommates? Normally she does, but since she has seniority among the girls and needs little observation, she gets precedence when vacancies crop up. Besides, we like to keep her available to help acclimate new students whenever possible. And there have been a lot of vacancies lately? Mother Anna's mouth settled into a thin line. A few more than usual, yes. Abby wrung her hands awkwardly. I heard a rumor that there have been some deaths here in the last few months. She said. Suicides. Abby, dear, you shouldn't listen to rumors. Anna said chidingly. People tell all sorts of crazy stories about life on the street. Come on now, and I'll show you the cafeteria. Not waiting for Abby to reply, Mother Anna quickened her step and passed in front of her, heading down the hallway. Abby watched her walk away, watched him walk away, leaving her in a pool of her own blood, pausing in the doorway, turning back, mad yellow eyes glowing, jaws grinning, teeth shining like needles, knife-like fingers red and dripping. It giggles as she falls to the floor. The floor rushed up suddenly, smacking against her cheek and arms as she went skidding across the linoleum. Mother Anna was looking back at her, frowning again. Are you all right, dear? Shaking, Abby struggled to her feet, bracing herself against the wall. I... I'm fine. She managed, brushing her hair out of her eyes again. I just tripped. Well, be careful, honey. These floors can be slippery. She turned and began walking off, more slowly this time so Abby could catch up. After taking a moment to calm her pounding heart, she did so.
Abby made it through the rest of the tour without experiencing any further episodes. Mother Anna offered her a drink when they reached the cafeteria, but she declined. She wasn't really thirsty, and she was already starting to recover from the last incident. She wasn't sure if it was affecting her less strongly than before, or if she was just becoming more accustomed to processing the emotions involved. Either way, it seemed to be getting somewhat easier to deal with. After the cafeteria, Anna showed her the classrooms, the large communal showers used by the students, the nurse's office, and the gardens behind the cathedral, where many of their chores took place. Surprisingly, there was even a skyball court beyond the gardens that was open to the students, though it was a relatively primitive one, with only three-meter-high targets and no lev pads or jump platforms. They got back to her room shortly after eight, and Mother Anna left her in Jenna's care. By that time, it had been over a half an hour since her last episode, and she was actually beginning to feel relaxed. So, what brings you here? Jenna asked. She was sitting on the edge of one of the lower bunks, watching as Abby unpacked a few of her things. Abby paused and considered. I've been seeing things, she said. Visions, I guess. Hallucinations. Whatever. I'm hoping to find out why so I can make it stop. Uh-huh. What makes you think coming here is going to help? A friend asked me to check it out, Abby said. He thought my coming here would give me a fresh perspective on things. Anyway, I thought you liked it here. I do, Jenna said, smiling lasciviously. People always coming and going and coming around here. Lots of new friends to meet. She rose from the bed and took a step in Abby's direction, which was about all it took to cross the room. After the old ladies go to bed, we'll make sure you get a more proper introduction to how things work around here. She reached out a hand, placing it on Abby's shoulder. Don't touch me! Abby snapped, backing away, her hands going up defensively and almost curling like claws in front of her. Jenna backed off, shocked at her reaction. Okay, okay, I'm sorry, she said. Need some time to work into things? Fine, I get that. A little bit of her former smile crept back onto her face. You're missing out, though. Do you decide to stick around? You'll see what I mean. Abby sighed. You don't understand, she said, shaking her head. It's not safe for you to touch me. The other girl bristled at that. Oh, come on, that's bullshit. It's not like I'm seeping acid or anything. You know what? You don't like hell babies. Just say so. I'm a big girl. I can take it. That's not it, Abby said, shaking her head. I don't care that you're part Daedra. I've met tieflings before. It doesn't bother me. Then what? You've got something against girls liking girls? Honey, there are three million people in this city who can change sexes at the drop of a hat. Gender roles ain't exactly what they used to be. Jeez, you come from the Flatlands or something? That's not it either. When I said it wasn't safe, I meant for you. She swallowed, then looked up. I'm a telepath. Jenna's eyebrows went up. For real? Abby nodded. For real. No shit. So why is it dangerous for me to touch you? Abby shrugged. Skin-to-skin contact enhances telepathic powers. Sometimes more than we can control. Next thing you know, you're seeing into me, and I'm seeing into you. She looked away. No more secrets. No more lies. Goes deep enough, and there's no more me, and no more you. Just us. Wow, sounds... intimate. Jenna purred. You have no idea. Abby murmured. She shook her head. But it's like rape if you're not ready for it. Besides, the things I have floating around in my mind right now, you don't want that inside of you. Trust me. Jenna came over and sat down on the other bed, facing her. Okay, I think I get it, she said, leaning down and cocking her head to look into Abby's eyes. Her expression was serious and thoughtful. No touching. At least until you get this mind job of yours sorted out. Anything I can do to help? I'm not sure yet, Abby admitted. You know about the suicides that have happened here these last few months? Jenna frowned. Yeah, of course. Why, do you think there's a connection to these visions of yours? My friend thinks so anyway. It's at least worth looking into. 
Did you know the girls who died? I know everyone here, Jenna said, but Abby could tell that the innuendo was pure reflex. There was no humor in the words. Trisha, Maya, Sanji. Trisha was here for eight years, Maya for two. Sanji was the new kid. She'd only been here a month, and it was after Trish and Maya were already gone. So, yeah, I knew them. How did they die? Jenna shrugged listlessly, her body language as numb as her voice. It was a dramatic shift from her earlier demeanor. Obviously, she didn't like talking about this. Trish stole a knife during kitchen duty, snuck into the showers at night, and slit her wrists. Maya hung herself with her bed sheets. Sanji was half-demon. She drank a dozen bottles of holy water she found in one of the supply cabinets. She shook her head. They tried to pump her stomach. It was too late. Gods, I'm sorry, Jenna. Jenna shrugged. Not your fault. Did they have any history of depression? Any reason they would do that to themselves? Jenna snorted, a bitter and joyless sound. (laughs) Abby, you don't end up in a place like this unless you're screwed up in one way or another. I'm one of the lucky ones. My only problem is no decent family wants to adopt an incubus's kid, no matter how much you say you've reformed her. There's girls who come in here pregnant at 13, running from abusive families, strung out on rain or spellfire, or so fucked up by some street wolves' mind control spells they they can't even remember their own names anymore. I saw a kid come in here once who had so many fallen writing on her that she spent every night thrashing around on the floor screaming. They had to call in some exorcist guy from the Citadel to fix that one. And the old lady spent years afterward fixing up the mess those bastards left behind inside her. She spread her hands outward. Everybody here's got a reason to be depressed, Abby. Only difference between them is what they choose to do about it. Me, I choose to look on the bright side of things. You let yourself start thinking about all the ways the world sucks, you'll go crazy. Doesn't matter who you are. Abby nodded thoughtfully. So you've got a girl who's been dealing with it okay for eight years, she mused. What makes her snap? What changes? I don't know, Jenna said darkly. But you find it? You let me know so I can kick its ass. Trisha was my best friend. Abby laid back on her bed and sighed wearily. Deal. Whatever it is, if it has an ass, you'll be the first in line to kick it. She paused, frowning as a thought struck her. Did you say your dad was an incubus? Yeah, so? So correct me if I'm wrong, but Inky's kids are born looking human, right? And then they turn into incubi and succubi when they hit puberty. Right. Jenna's eyes were starting to twinkle again. Evidently, she approved of the change in topic. Now, Mother Anna said you had a mixed ancestry. So I assume that she meant you were a tiefling. But if what we just said is true, then you're a full-blooded succubus, right? Not half-human. Jenna smirked. (laughs) Normally, yeah, you'd be right. But if you catch a sucky before she hits puberty and do the right sort of magic on her, you can sometimes keep her from changing completely. She still ends up with some of the Daedra heritage in her looks, But if you do it just right, you can keep her essence human. No mystical powers of seduction. And no need to have sex to feed on other people's life force. Wow. Cool. I guess. Jenna said, noncommittally. She lay back on the bunk, staring up at the one above her. There was a brief silence. So, Abby said, Did it work? Did they do it just right? Jenna looked over and gave her a sly grin. Mother thinks so. And that's all that matters. Ah, no wonder you wanted to get in my pants. You're hungry. Hmm, it's okay. Jenna said easily, waving a hand. It'll be lights out soon and I'll have lots of other opportunities. Oh, in the meantime, if you want to brush your teeth before bed, you better hurry. It's a good time to shower, too, if you don't like dealing with a big crowd in the mornings. Good point. Abby said, getting to her feet again and rummaging for her toiletries bag. You going to shower now, too? Nah. Jenna said, grinning. 
I like the crowd in the mornings. Things get so much more interesting when there are two dozen naked bodies involved. Abby shook her head, amazed. I can't believe Mother Anna hasn't caught on to you yet. Jenna shrugged. People see what they want to see. Mother's raised me for as long as I can remember. She doesn't want to deal with what I am, and I'm not interested in forcing her. Besides, I do try to be good. I don't hurt anybody or take more energy than they can afford to give, and I'm really not into leading people down the primrose path of destruction or whatever. Most people are plenty perverse enough without my help. Worst I do, dial down their inhibitions a little. Most ways, I'm just a chick trying to figure things out, like everybody else. She shrugged again. But birds gotta fly, fish gotta swim, cheetahs gotta run. And suckies gotta screw. Abby finished. It's my meal ticket, honey. No shame in being what I was made to be, right? You above all people should know that. Abby smiled, and it was probably the most genuine smile she'd had all day. Nodding to Jenna, she went to take her shower. Whatever else happened, she knew now that she did not want to be in there tomorrow morning. It just made her feel funny, watching someone else eat. Abby stood in the spray of the showerhead, one of six such nozzles arrayed around a central pole, and let the water wash over her as she tried to think. Something was wrong here, and it was more than just her own recurrent visions. For all the emotional problems that plagued the girls who came here, the information she had suggested that suicides were rare in the school's history. Three in the space of six months was unheard of. What had happened to drive Trisha, Maya, and Sanji over the edge? She looked around at the rest of the communal shower, at the nine other shower stations like the one she stood under, and the drain spaced evenly across the tile floor. There were a couple of other girls in here, but they were over on the far side of the room, half-veiled in mist. Neither of them were paying any attention to Abby. She looked down at the drains, frowning. Six months ago, Trisha had opened her veins over one of them, and let the lifeblood spill out of her. From what Abby knew of such things, it would have been a quiet, almost peaceful way to die. But someone who was really at peace wouldn't have done such a thing which meant there might be something left. Stepping out of the shower spray, Abby paced slowly from one drain to another, her bare feet brushing over the gratings as she passed. At each one she paused, closing her eyes, focusing. She'd gone halfway across the room when she felt a twinge run through her body. There. Getting down on her knees, Abby placed her hand against the grate and closed her eyes, reaching for the strange sensation that tickled at the back of her mind. Stretching out her will, she sent a wave of comfort and reassurance toward the sensation, coaxing whatever it was to come out of hiding and show itself to her. Slowly, the tickling coalesced into the sense of a presence somewhere close to her, like the feeling of someone breathing gently into her ear. Show me. She whispered. Talk to me. She opened her eyes. There, in the pool of water gathering around the drain, she saw a reflection staring back at her that was not her own. A young woman, perhaps sixteen, gazed up at her with soft blue eyes from a pale white face framed with long curly blonde hair. She was soaked and naked, like Abby, and her hair clung to her shoulders and the upper curves of her breasts. Her lip was trembling, her expression sad and confused. Trisha, Abby murmured. The shade blinked. Who are you? She asked, in a voice Abby could hear only in her mind. A friend, Abby said. Do you remember what happened to you? The girl frowned, as if deep in thought. I laid down on the floor and went to sleep. It... it was quiet. Why did you go to sleep, Trisha? The image closed her eyes, shook her head slightly. Oh, don't make me remember. Please. I need you to remember, Trisha. 
Abby said earnestly. Please help me. Why did you do this? Trisha looked at her. To escape, she said at last. Only way I could get away. What were you trying to escape from, Trisha? The shade's face clouded with fear. Bad dreams, she said. What kind of dreams? No, don't remember. Couldn't see it, no face, no name. But it was there. Always there, every night. No way out. She shuddered. Except one. How long did this go on? The image seemed to shrug, helplessly. Can't remember. Weeks. Too long. She paused, and her eyes went unfocused, as if looking behind Abby. Her mouth fell open, then closed. Can't stay. Have to hide. Trisha, wait, please. No, can't stay. The girl shouted. Then, more softly. You should go. Leave. You don't want to be here. You should hide. Trisha, what is... The girl looked up. It's behind you, she said. Then the water rippled, and she was gone. Hey, you all right? Someone asked. Abby felt a hand on her shoulder. She turned around, looked up. The thing hunkered there, too big for the room. A mountain of twisted flesh and shadow. Saliva dripped from huge jaws and needle teeth as mad yellow eyes shone with glee. It had one huge hand around a naked girl's throat as the other slit her belly open, wrapping her intestines around its knife-like fingers. The girl stared at her with vacant eyes as she held Abby's shoulder in one weakening, outstretched hand. Abby screamed and fell backward, pushing herself away. A girl stood there, body intact, arms still reaching for her, eyes and mouth wide in silent terror. She wavered there a moment, and then her knees gave way and she fell to the floor, shaking. Oh, gods, I'm sorry, Abby said, wincing. She didn't dare to put a comforting hand anywhere near the girl. The poor thing had already seen too much. What? The girl gasped, then retched, vomit spilling onto the floor. She choked, spat, and heaved for more than a minute before she could speak again. What was that? She said at last. Abby stood up. A bad dream, she said softly. A dream? The other spat, looking up at her with angry eyes. What the fuck is that supposed to mean? Abby looked up at the ceiling. I'm not sure yet, she said, but I'm going to find out. In her dreams that night, Abby walked the halls of the school, searching. It was the same building she'd walked through earlier that evening, and yet it was different. The red wallpaper of the first floor was now something moist and slippery, like the lining of some creature's throat. Doors opened and closed like fleshy sphincters as she passed through them, and everywhere a heavy mist, hot and fetid, hung in the air. Her bare feet squelched against a carpet that looked and felt like an enormous tongue, twitching and lolling beneath her as she walked. She went down to the cathedral and looked around. The mist hung more thickly here, swirling around pews of flesh and arching columns that had become the long, curving bones of a ribcage. The fog stung her eyes and chewed at her skin, as if it were made of acid. Abby lifted her hands to touch her temples, and a third eye opened, glowing brightly in the center of her forehead. It cast a beam of cool blue radiance before her, evaporating the burning mists and painting her surroundings in patterns of light and shadow. Moving with slow, cautious steps, she searched the cathedral, but apart from herself, it was empty. She searched the lobby the offices, and the storerooms, but all was still and quiet. She found the bedrooms where Mother Anna and the other sisters slept. Each room looked like a bloated, membranous sack, with the women lying asleep on beds that protruded from the walls like cancerous growths. A faint shimmer of light surrounded each of them, but it was dim and feeble, 
like a bulb receiving too little current. The mist clung close around the sleeping women, sending out probing tendrils that tried and failed to find gaps in the auras that surrounded them. Abby continued walking, up the stairs and onto the second floor. Here the pale yellow walls and floors were rough and hard, and seemed to be made of bones. The students' rooms hung in neat rows, distended sacks surrounded by bars of long, sharp teeth. The energy of strong emotions radiated through the walls of the sacks like warm red light, though the emotions of each girl were different. Anger at being abandoned, fear for the lives of the unborn children some of them carried, hatred for those who had caused them so much pain. Some of the sacks glowed brightly, the emotions raw and throbbing. For others, who had found a measure of peace, the light was soft and steady. Still others seemed almost empty, drained of the capacity to feel anything, and in these the shadows gathered until they seemed almost a living thing, a darkness somehow more real than the light. Far off down the hallway, one sack seemed to be glowing more brightly than all the others, though Abby could only distinguish it as a distant light through the mists that filled the passage. From the same direction she heard a scratching, the sound of claws on bone. Focusing on her third eye, willing it to greater brightness, she strode toward the light and the noise. Something was standing outside the brightly lit sack, its bulk filling the corridor. Hunched shoulders heaved with quickened breaths. Splayed feet shifted back and forth on two short legs. Gangling arms reached up to pry at the toothy bars with long, clawed hands. It peered through the bars with bright, eager yellow eyes, watching the activities within the semi-transparent sack with great interest. Abby hesitated, resolve wrestling with fear. She looked more closely at the brightly glowing sack, stretching out her perceptions toward it, and inside she saw Jenna and a half-dozen other girls, naked bodies writhing together in the tight confines of the room. Bright energies swirled within the sack, selfish lust and nobler affection mixing together in a whirling cloud of passion, as each heart within sought to escape their pain and loss in the pleasuring touch of the others. Jenna wove and twisted among them like a serpent among a clutch of eggs, consuming selfish and selfless energies alike as she drew off a little of the life force of each participant, replenishing and sustaining her own. Meanwhile, the beast stood outside and watched the frenzy within, jaws slathering. It squeezed one claw through the bars, barely touching one of the girls, but then it snarled and suddenly drew back again, as if stung. Anger welled up in Abby and her third eye blazed with light. "'Hey!' she shouted in challenge. "'You get away from there!' At the same time, she unleashed a blast of psychic energy, sending it out like a laser beam to try to disrupt the creature's shadow flesh. The beam hit the beast in the shoulder and dissipated. The creature didn't even flinch. Instead, deliberately, it turned its head, yellow eyes leering at her from its nightmarish face. It laughed, a sibilant, wheezing sound. The matter, little one, it hissed. So we've got to die. Abby trembled, but she held her ground. She had to do this. No, she said. I'm not going to let you hurt them. No more. She sent out an even stronger mind blast, driven on a lance of anger and desperate fear. It barely left a mark in the creature's scaly hide. Abby froze in shock and terror. That blast would have shattered the minds of most mundanes. Why couldn't she even scratch this thing? The beast laughed again. <laughs> Not going to let me hurt them? It asked, its tone mocking. You're a foolish little girl. You could not even protect the life inside of you. Its eyes flashed and Abby staggered, staggered as Victor plunged the knife into her abdomen, crumpling to the floor as the baby screamed in her mind. She tried to fight back, tried to cover herself to protect the child, but her former lover struck her in the head with a vicious blow, and then stabbed the knife into her again. The child thrashed and wailed, unable to understand why pain and cold and hardness had invaded her place of safety, and then she shuddered and died, her blood mixing with Abby's own, her tiny, powerful little mind shredding Abby's with the force of its passing. Abby could do nothing, not cry, 
not even scream. But her pain went out in a wave of psychic energy that would touch everyone within two kilometers. Victor reared back, stunned by the mental blow, then screamed in rage and drove the knife into her once more. She only dimly heard his footsteps as he ran away, and she weakly held her hands to her stomach as she tried to stop the flow of blood. Others were coming now, words of encouragement ringing through her mind, but she couldn't hold on any longer. She felt herself slipping away, into the darkness, and fell to the floor, weeping, numb, and helpless. The creature towered over her, its eyes narrowed in disgust. You are not yet ripe, little one, it said, but soon your time will come. Tonight I dine elsewhere. It shambled past her, not giving her a second glance. Abby could do nothing. She just clutched her stomach and wept. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast right after these messages. The Land of Cairn. It is a world where gods can choose to live mortal lives to directly affect events in the world, and often do. The River of Magic is rising. Monsters are moving into Cairn through tears in the fabric. The dead are escaping Kalan's abyss. And the children of Aj have returned, just as the prophets foretold. But even as these overarching events play themselves out, a piece of the puzzle falls into place in the seemingly unremarkable town of Avedon Hill. Aramis Cragen, retired Aaronic advisor, arrives at Avedon Hill and is asked to investigate the murder of Greta Platt, the Avedon Manor housemistress. But in doing so, Aramis uncovers secrets that threaten Karen's very foundation. What begins as a search for justice becomes a fight for survival, all in a place where nothing is what it seems. Welcome to the land of Cairn. Welcome to Murder at Avedon Hill, a podcast novel by P.G. Holyfield. Featuring some of the great voices of podcasting and podcast fiction. A perfect place for Greta Platt to escape the troubles of the day. So beautiful, so inspiring. Also a fine place for someone to catch her defenseless and end her life. Not now, Joris. You chose the wrong time for one of your rants about undead threats rising there in There is Karen. evil here in Avedon Hill. You can never be sure what will greet you at your door. Of course it has to be alive. You should have known that, monk. You promised us the hunter, and you have failed us. You promised us a power beyond our understanding, and again, you have failed us. You have not seen what I have seen. Events are transpiring that neither you nor I can affect- Aaron's powers have peaked from under those covers. I hope you both survive long enough to find a use- Brother of Aaron, look how you've aged. You've spent so much of your life in darkness. Murder at Avedon Hill by P.G. Holyfield. Sit back and let the mystery unfold. Learn more at pgholyfield.com and patiobooks.com. In a world where evil supervillains run amok and corrupt superheroes care more about their hair than justice, one woman is caught in a web of manipulation. Keepsy Branson just wants to run her bar. She doesn't want to think about her old dreams of being a superhero or her tired ambitions to save the world. But the facts remain that Keepsy and her friends have powers too, and they will soon be needed as Seventh City falls into chaos, and no one knows who are the good guys and who are the bad. Playing for Keeps is a free audiobook from Mer Lafferty. Available at playingforkeepsnovel.com. Hi, this is Kim Harrison, author of The Hollows. And you're listening to the Metamore City Podcast. 
Thanks, Kim. We are back, ladies and gents. And to those of you who stuck with me to the end of the episode, thanks for listening. And remember, I warned you that this was going to be dark, so don't blame me if you spend the rest of the night looking behind you and checking your closets for nightmare beasties. Besides, if you think this was creepy, you should see the stuff Scott Sigler's doing over on Nocturnal, or what Phil Rossi did with Crescent. Those guys are still giving me the heebie-jeebies. We've had a fairly respectable number of emails about Metamore City, and I want to say thanks to everyone who's written to me about the show. At the time I'm recording this, though, I haven't gotten any new voicemails since the one from Michael Spence that I aired a month ago. Here's the thing, guys. Episode 7 is going to be the conclusion of Troubled Minds, and then Episode 8 is going to be coming out on December 30th. That's going to be our holiday episode, and I'd like to play some voicemails and do some other fun things with it. If I don't get any voicemails, though, that's going to be a really short show. So, if you've been listening to Metamore City, and you have any thoughts or questions about any of the episodes you've heard so far, call in and let me know. Our voicemail line, as always, is 206-350-7333. You can also record your comments on your computer and email them to me at feedback at metamorecity.com. I want this holiday episode to be something special, so I hope you guys will all chip in and give me a hand with this. Cool? Cool. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Yes, that's right, we've upgraded the license since our last episode. The rules of the license are still the same, though. You can make copies of the podcast and share them with your friends. You can create fanfic based on Metamore City and distribute that to your friends as long as you give me credit for creating the setting. And if you create anything new in the world of Metamore City that I like, and it fits with my vision of the setting, then I can take it and incorporate it back into the stories that I tell. Share and share alike. So, if you tell a good enough story in the world of Metamore City and I find out about it, you might even hear me air a version of it on the podcast, and I'll give you credit for it. If you want to learn more, you can check out the terms of the Creative Commons licenses at creativecommons.org. That'll do it for this week, folks. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Until next time, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org.